I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Support for MPB comes from the Woodward Hines Education Foundation, committed to helping more Mississippians obtain post-secondary credentials, college certificates, and degrees that lead to employment. More information about Woodward Hines Education Foundation at woodwardhines.org. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Wednesday, August 9th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, hear from the engineer who has now filed suit against his former employer at the Kemper County Energy Facility, Southern Company. An education look outlook as vacant positions have some people concerned about a teacher shortage in the state. And advocates speak out on evidence-based ways to help boost low-income women in the workforce. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. whistleblower behind the Kemper County Energy Facility debacle is now suing Southern Company, the parent company of Mississippi Power. Brett Wingo was a project manager at the Kemper County Energy Facility. He says he warned Southern their Kemper County plant would not meet cost estimates or deadlines. He was dismissed in 2015. Wingo says it was retaliation. He says the powers that be didn't want to admit the project should be shut down. Some say Kemper was designed to maintain coal as a viable fuel source. The plant is more than three years behind schedule with 10 delays announced in the past 18 months. It was originally supposed to cost $2.9 billion. Wingo tells MPB's Mark Rigsby why he chose to file. I filed the lawsuit because my career was harmed and as a result my family was harmed from loss of income and basically a once promising career derailed. The company publicly sued me outed me as essentially a troublemaker, but I was not a troublemaker. I tried to fix things internally. So this is the only recourse I have to make things right. It's really just about justice for workers versus corporations that don't regulate themselves. Brett, we spoke about a year ago about this subject, the Kemper County Energy Facility, and you were telling us a very detailed story about how you brought your concerns to the head of Southern Company and others that were overseeing the the Kemper project. Can you give us the short version of that? Once you go from designing a plant where you're just an individual contributor and an engineer, you're kind of buried in the numbers, flow rates, pressures, temperatures. Once they make you a project manager, you're not worried about that anymore. You're worried about bringing in your project on time, on schedule, and under budget. 
we were losing a grip on that really badly by the time I became a project manager in late 2011. And I was going to do what I've always done throughout my entire career, and that is make a difference. I was going to somehow bring this thing back on the schedule and on the budget, or at least make promises that we could keep one or the other. In the course of trying to do that, I became aware of some serious issues. And as you can imagine, being put in that type of situation, you have two choices. You can either address them or you can turn a blind eye. I don't turn a blind eye when I see serious issues of financial reporting, serious issues essentially of fraud, mismanagement, waste. Eventually it turned into serious issues involving safety because it was the same managers that they kept in place over financial issues. Those same managers remain to also create safety issues. And at the end of the day, these are issues of corporate culture, and that starts at the top. And that starts and ends with the CEO. In your opinion, this was all about money? Yes. I mean, at the end of the day, it's always about money, but at different levels. You know, when you're running a Fortune 500 company, your number one job is to take care of your shareholders. So in order to do that, you have to create cash flow, a return on equity. Well, there's only one way to do that. You have to build a big power plant. You don't get much return on equity to build a $600 million natural gas combined cycle. You can get a whole lot more equity if you can talk the Mississippi Public Service Commission into building a $3.1 billion integrated gasification combined cycle plant. And that has the added benefit to it of if there are cost overruns, you can explain them away on unknowns, which is a constant theme throughout the entire ordeal not only when I was inside the company, but even after I was forced out, the company continued to claim things were unknowable, when in fact, they were very well knowable. And I know this because I was inside. The Kemper facility was to offer state-of-the-art clean coal technology that you were a part of. Does the technology still work, and do you think it'll be viable in the future? Yes, the technology works, but who can afford it? I believe Kemper will work, but do you want to spend... $300 $300 million a year making it work, maybe 50 to 75% of the time, and the rest of the time, you're going to run on natural gas anyways. It doesn't act as a hedge against natural gas when you have to run the plant. Even at its best availability on coal, you're still going to have to run the plant on natural gas 25 to 50% of the time. So it's a bridge to nowhere. It's a technology that does not provide a solution. It's just not economics. Brett, does it make you sad at all that it looks like this plant is now dead when it comes to the coal gasification part? It makes me sad on a a number of levels. Uh, The first thing I I thought of when I heard the uh, PSC stipulation that was issued on June 21st made it pretty clear what was going to happen. There wasn't much wiggle room left in there for the company. It it was going to run on natural gas. I first thought I was sad for the workers that I knew were about to lose their jobs. You know, it takes about 330 employees to run a coal gasification or a clean coal plant. It only takes less than 30 workers to run a natural gas combined cycle. So I knew about 300 employees, a lot of them that came from out of state to pursue a long 40-year career at Kemper, were going to be looking for work soon. What are you asking for in your lawsuit? Justice, plain and simple. I want the laws to be enforced. If any average man were to do what I reported what I documented, what was plainly evident, even from a casual observer inside the company, and and even evident from the outside the company, quite frankly, someone like me or you would have already been in prison. We certainly would have already been seen inside of a courtroom. And these laws were written after Enron and after the 2008 financial crisis to hold executives accountable. And the laws that we're suing under are the whistleblower protection laws. I tried to fix things internally. The fact that I turned out to be correct in all of my warnings, which were pretty dire, quite frankly. I could see the road we were going down. 
I tried so hard to warn the executives that this is the future. This is what the future looks like. And not only did they ignore me, they tried to silence me, and then they fired me and with a callous disregard for the well-being of my family. Brett Wingo, former project manager at the Kemper County Energy Facility. Thanks for being on Mississippi Edition. Thanks for having me, Mark. In January, Southern was ordered to rehire Wingo with back pay. Southern did not immediately offer comment. Coming up, more than a 1,000 open teacher positions in Mississippi may be an indication of a teacher shortage in the state. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Now that it's back to school time again, lots of kids are going off to college and some are even moving out of the house. Now the question is, what do you do with this empty nest? Let us here at Fix It 101 help you DIY that extra space into a home office, walk around closet, maybe a new family gathering space. Don't just put the treadmill in there and call it a home gym. Tune in this morning at 9 for tips on converting your empty nest into your dream space. That's Fix It 101 only on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi school districts are working to fill vacant teacher positions as the school year begins. Experts say this could be an indication of a teacher shortage in the state. A solution for many is to hire teachers with an emergency certification. Jackson Public Schools, the second largest in the state, has some 200 positions yet to be filled. In North Bolivar Consolidated School District, the shortage is lower but still evident. Maurice Smith is superintendent of North Bolivar Consolidated School school district. He tells MPB's Alexis Ware there are seven openings. We are like most districts in the Delta. We are having a hard time finding teachers in the critical areas such as math, science, and elementary education. Currently, we are needing two science teachers, one math teacher, and about four elementary teachers. How is the district planning to cover these openings with the new school year starting? We are asking for some one-year license on some teachers, and we're interviewing a couple of science teachers. We hope we can fill those, but basically we have to look for a one-year license. With the teacher shortage at these schools, how does that impact students? We try to have as little impact in terms of student achievement as possible. We have to set up mentoring programs for these teachers and professional development to make sure that their skills are enhanced. Are there any concerns that an emergency licensed teacher will not be able to perform as well as a traditional teacher? Quite naturally, you prefer to have a certified teacher in most cases. But what we're trying to do is offer a safety net with those teachers, with our coaches, principals, and leadership team, such that they will deliver quality instruction to the students. Why do you think your school district and other schools in the Delta have such a difficult time bringing in teachers? Well, I don't think you can just pick one factor and single that out as the reason why. It's a combination of geographics, just where we're located, the quality of life, the opportunity. And nowadays, a lot of your young teachers like to go to the urban areas, and we're basically a rural school district. What do you think it's going to take to change that? I think you're going to have to look at creative ways of attracting teachers. It would be beneficial if we could offer a financial incentive packet to recruit teachers and also look at our local supplement that it needs to be higher than what it is so we can 
compete for quality teachers. So regarding state budget, could more money help you be able to hire licensed teachers? Certainly, that would be a positive incentive to attract teachers. Mississippi, you know, teacher salaries are in the bottom third of nationally. So any raise in teacher salary would be a big step in helping recruiting and retaining teachers. Marie Smith is the superintendent for North Bolivar Consolidated School District. Thank you so much for speaking with me. You're welcome. Rachel Cantor is executive director of Mississippi First. She tells MPB's Alexis Ware there's more to a shortage than open positions. Teacher shortages are actually a lot more complicated than may first appear because often what people are calling a shortage is the same as the number of vacancies across the state. But there are really two types of ways that schools fill vacancies. One is through teachers who are existing teachers who are changing schools. And then the other is through new teachers. Often we talk about teacher shortages as if they are the same as vacancies, which is not true. The other thing is that we often talk about shortages in general, as if every school in every type of teacher position is experiencing a shortage. The reality is that in Mississippi, like many other states, shortages are much more acute in some places than in others. So school districts that serve a very high portion of low-income kids in certain geographic areas probably find it much harder to fill any position they have than school districts that serve kids who may be low income but maybe a smaller percentage and who live in more uh, geographically dense areas or areas that are seen as more desirable for people to move to. Secondly, schools that have vacancies in certain subject areas are also going to find it very difficult to fill those positions or more difficult to fill those positions than school districts that have other subject area vacancies. So for example, school districts with special education vacancies, school districts with high school math or high school science vacancies or foreign language vacancies are much more likely to feel the impact of not having enough teachers to pick from than school districts that are having vacancies in English, in elementary, or even in high school history. So the teacher shortage conversation is actually a lot more complicated than people think it is. Mississippi has shortages in special education, foreign language, and some math and science fields, but not as many vacancies and as many as much of a shortage in elementary, for example. When school districts cannot fill their vacancies, whether that's because they're in a geographic area or because that is experiencing um, hard to staff um, situation, or they're in a Uh, subject area that is difficult to fill regardless of where the school is, then they they might have to either double up classes, make class size a little bigger to try to get more kids into a classroom with a certified teacher who's certified in that area, or some school districts resort to emergency licensure. This is one of those things that had been eliminated under No Child Left Behind. And then the new rules under ESSA are a little bit less strict than the No Child Left Behind rules. And so we've seen the Department of Education and we've seen in other states loosening some of those emergency licensure restrictions, trying to help school districts fill vacancies, especially in hard-to-staff subject areas. What are your thoughts on being able to fill these positions with non-licensed teachers? Just because someone is not formally licensed does not necessarily mean 
that they will not be able to command the subject matter, but it is a signal. So you have to ask yourself, why is the person not licensed? When No Child Left Behind came out, one of the important things in the law was something called highly qualified teacher requirements. And you had to have a bachelor's degree in the subject area in which you were teaching, and you had to pass a national test certifying that you had that competency. The most important indicator of whether or not a teacher is going to be good for a child is whether or not that teacher has a grasp of the subject matter that they're teaching. Often when we're looking at unlicensed teachers, we're looking at teachers who have not passed subject area competence tests. So while it is possible that school districts may be finding non-traditional teacher candidates that have subject matter competence and they just haven't gone through the formal process to get a license, to get an education degree, to get certified in some way, often when we're talking about unlicensed teachers, we're talking about teachers that they may have an education degree, but for whatever reason, they can't pass the subject matter test to demonstrate that they know the content they're trying to teach, or we're talking about individuals that may have a bachelor's degree and no experience in education, no subject matter competence. In in those situations, we're basically talking about warm bodies in front of children, and that is never good for a child's education. Students need to be in classrooms with teachers who have subject matter competence in the subject that they're teaching because we know that the number one most important in-school factor for students' achievement is the quality of that teacher standing in front of them. So what's the solution? There could be a variety of different solutions depending on why schools are facing a lot of vacancies. Part of it, you have to look at the pipeline. Are we producing enough teachers? Are enough teachers getting licensed? then that might mean we might need to go back and look at what are we doing in our colleges of education in order to teach our teacher candidates so that they can pass licensure exams. If the situation is more that we have plenty of teachers, but for whatever reason they're unwilling to move to areas that have severe vacancies that they can't fill, then we're going to have to look at different types of solutions, incentive pay to get them to move there, you know, more mentoring, more support to make them feel like that's a place where they can be successful. It might also look like what can we do to restructure the way that we have our classes so that we can have fewer professionals who are reaching more kids through um, more innovative staffing plans. There are a variety of different things that we might do. And what districts are we seeing teachers leaving, causing there to be more open vacancies? The legislature passed Critical Shortage Act several years ago, and they listed several counties that had lots of vacancies. And these tend to be our rural counties that have a lot of poverty. But we also have... Rachel Cantor is the Executive Director of Mississippi First. Thank you so much for speaking with me. Sure. Thank you. The State Department of Education says 48 districts currently qualify as critical shortage areas. Coming up, improving the state's workforce by offering child care to single moms, training for better jobs. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The Health Minute is underwritten by Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Mississippi. Live healthy on the go with the My Blue mobile app available on the Apple App Store or Google Play. More information at bcbsms.com. It's good to be blue. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. 
Mississippi workforce programs can help more women succeed by offering child care options. That's according to a new policy brief by the Mississippi Low-Income Child Care Initiative. Child care costs can be as much or more than college tuition. The high costs can keep some low-income women from being able to afford care and keep others from being available to train for better-paying jobs. The policy brief, Bridging Mississippi's Skills and Wage Gap, outlines the importance of coupling child care with pathways to higher-paying jobs where women are not traditionally employed. It also highlights a success story in Biloxi, training women for careers in construction. Carol Burnett is executive director of the Mississippi Low-Income Child Care Initiative. She tells us creative use of funds to provide child care and job training is a forward-thinking solution. The Mississippi Low-Income Child Care Initiative has been working on women's economic security for some time looking broadly at how low-income working women need supports in order to achieve economic security. We've also been working with the state's workforce system. Uh, We were part of the Mississippi Workforce Investment Opportunity Act planning team, implementing some new workforce strategies under the new federal WIOA Act. And we've been looking at how to put together strategies that could really create effective pathways for low-income women to economic security. And what we know is that a lot of children in our state are living in single-mother-headed families. Single mothers work, but they are disproportionately clustered in low-paying jobs. If you look at the occupations in Mississippi, you will see there's a lot of gender segregation A lot of occupations are mostly women or mostly men, and the mostly women occupations pay less. So building a pathway for women who have a terrific work ethic to jobs that pay a wage that's going to achieve economic security for their families meant finding non-traditional occupation job training for those women. These are single women-led households which means that even making a low wage, they can't work more than one job because they have child care responsibilities. It's difficult to even work one job without child care support, which is the other part of what this policy brief focuses on. It's really looking at coupling a pathway to higher earnings with child care support because both they're like two sides of a coin for these women. And of course, our state's child care assistance program is only serving about 10 or 12 percent of the eligible children right now. So that, while it helps those who can get it, has a limited reach. So the ability to couple these uh, Department of Labor funds with the state's TANF funds to put this model together has created an incredibly effective impactful pathway for women to get the child care they need so that they can go to the training, look for a job, enter employment, and enter employment that's actually going to take them to a higher wage. Isn't it a challenge, though, to find the jobs where these low-income women might be living with their families? Many of the large employers are seeking to hire more people. We have in Mississippi what the state refers to as a middle skills gap, which means that there are a lot more jobs in that middle skill range than there are applicants who are qualified to take those jobs. So preparing women to be available to take those jobs is actually a real service to employers. 
And the program in Biloxi called the Moore Community House Women in Construction Program is one of those examples. We're working to try to expand the curriculum with some of the training partners that are in our area. In a different part of the state, Toyota works with community colleges in the area to do training so that people are ready to work Mm -hmm. either directly for Toyota or some of the ancillary businesses. Mm -hmm. Would that be part of your program as well? That would certainly be a focus of the recommendations that we have here. What we're trying to do is where all of this new attention to workforce development and workforce training, we're trying to bring a recommendation to the table that says target recruitment of women, especially women who are single moms who have a very strong work ethic, but they need training that is going to give them incomes because to support their family. Because an hour. And build into the workforce support a focus on child care because that is what's going to help make it possible for these women to enter and succeed and make a real difference long term in their ability to contribute economically for their family and also uh, productively as citizens of Mississippi. If someone is in this situation listening to mm-hmm. us talking, mm-hmm. What can they do to find out more, to find out if this might be something that might be right for them? Well, they could contact us, and our contact is pretty easy. It's info at mschildcare.org. Carol Burnett is the executive director of the Mississippi Low Income Child Care Initiative. Carol, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you, Karen. The policy brief also recommends the state connect recipients of public assistance with job training programs. Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio for a full slate of Mississippi-based programs. At 9 o'clock, it's Fix It 101. At 10 o'clock, it's Everyday Tech. And at 11, stay tuned for Southern Remedy. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi edition, only on MPB Think Radio.